0: If you have your Bible, I want you to go John chapter 8, um, and we're going to pick up this text today. Um, we've been in this, this story, this series, we jumped back in the book of John last week, and there's a mini-series that we're doing within this, and um, this series called Stuck. And the idea is this, that we all kind of get into these positions in life where we get spiritually stuck. And, uh, and God is not, we're not in close communion with God. Uh, he is, seems to be distant with us. And there's this coldness that we're walking through. It feels like we're punching the, the gas pedal, but we're not going anywhere at all. And, and many times we feel God is moved. We don't really know quite the reason that there's this stuckness in our life. But most times uh, what's happened is, is that there's something in our life that has caused us to be stuck. Some are Stuck in a fear, a fear of death or a fear of loss. Some are stuck wandering in purposelessness in life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. Why why am I created? Why do I exist? And you get stuck wandering in that. Some are stuck in past and present sin. Some are stuck in guilt and shame from past and present sin. And if that's you and you, you, you want to look horizontally on why there's this feeling of stuckness, many times it dwells right inside of us. So I'm glad you're here because uh, the Lord is going to do some work in here through 8, 9, 10, 11 chapters where he encounters people just like that. He's going to walk through and meet people in these narratives here that are stuck in their life, and he's going to come up, he's going to show up through a divine appointment, and he's going to set them free from the things that enslave them. And that's what the Lord wants to do in your life. He doesn't want to leave you in a position of just being okay and going through the motions. That's not the life that he went to the cross for. He desires a full life of abundant life, a joyful life. But in order to experience that, We've got to tackle these things that cause us to get stuck. So today, specifically, the Lord is going to encounter a woman, an adulterous woman, who is a sexual captive, and she is enslaved in guilt and shame in her life for her past mistakes and current mistakes in sexual immorality. Might have just hit some people in here right now. It's probably several of us that can resonate with this adulterous woman. The good news is he doesn't leave in condemnation. He shows up to set her free and tells her there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Go and sin no more. So there's a a great ending to this story today. If that is you and you've walked in today in past or present sin and you are wallowing in shame and your guilt, the Lord wants to set you free from that. So let's read the text. If you'll stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is going to be in chapter 8 and then we'll pray, and then we'll go to work. This is in chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We adore your word. It is life to us. It is our hope. It is our joy. It is our food. It is our drink. Without your word, we are undone and utterly lost. By your word is the only sure hope that we have any direct access to you. So, Father, I pray today that we have a desire for your word of the things I've just said as I pray for our congregation that would go way beyond me reading it at this church on Sunday. I pray that the people in our congregation have that kind of desire for your word, a dependency. And Father, today what it's going to feed our souls in is those that are walking in guilt and shame from past and present sin. Show us the story of the adulterous woman. Show us how we are the adulterous woman Father, set us free from those things that hold us back and keep us from living like free people who've been redeemed. And Father, for those today that they don't have guilt and shame over the sin that they have committed against you. They think they're good people. They minimize, they compare themselves to other people in this world as a means of righteousness. God, would you, by your grace... Give them shame and give them guilt over their sin in the hopes that you would lead them to freedom. We love you. We believe that your word has the ability to do this. That is why we read it and proclaim it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so let's go to work. Here's what's going to be a little bit different about today, uh, to be honest with you. You're going to get a BOGO sermon. So you're going to buy one, get one free sermon. I've got one on the front end, uh, and, and then you got a, a, a free one, and then you get the one you paid for in just a minute. So here's what I mean by that. Right out of the gate, in your translations, in your Bible, you might have noticed um, in your copy, uh, this is a bracketed verse, and there might be a little note beside it that says, this text or this story is not in the earliest of transcripts. So that that might be the case here. So right out of the gate, we got to stop. Like if you're reading your Bible, you have to stop and you can't blow past this. Not in the earliest transcripts? So what does that even mean? Why are you preaching it if it's not included in the original transcripts, the original canon of Scripture? Is it? Should it be? Is it authoritative? Does it have any right to teach us anything? The answer is Yes to all of those things. And I'll explain what that actually means in just a moment. Uh, but here's what we need to know. We need to know the Scripture and define where Scripture comes from. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the spirit so god inspired men to write the bible it is not speculation god is the author of all of his word and he is the divine author of everything that is in it it's not just about god it is actually from god now here's the here's where the breakdown comes so as God divinely spoke to these humans who, who inked down and they put pen to paper what God had revealed to them, well, that made original transcripts, right? The original Bible. Well, they wanted to obviously produce that in multiple copies so tons of people could get it. Well, Moses didn't have a printing press. The apostle Paul didn't, couldn't make multiple copies on the Xerox, right? He couldn't do all those things. So what happened? How could they make copies of the original writings of the heroes of faith? Well, men named scribes who were experts in the law would meticulously copy down by hand, uh, repeating and writing down copies of the Scripture. Not only were the the law of God, they also copied and wrote down uh, the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the rabbi. So a rabbi would say something, the scribes would write it down and therefore it would be held in authority and position. So if it's been translated over and over again, and we know this to be true because there's probably different translations that are sitting in the room and the Bible has been translated in so many different languages where humans have sat down and rewritten the original text. If that's true, the next case is the skeptic would say, well, how can it be trusted? If men flawful men, men with flaws, have written down and copied the Scriptures over and over again and maybe changed some things up. And there's some textual criticism here. How can it be trusted? Well, how do we know when to stop and when to read and take what's truth and what's not? And we get to ask those questions, we get into a very dangerous position. And skeptics will say that about the Bible. You've probably heard that. Uh, the, the funny thing about that is typically it's the Bible is the only one that, that gets accused of that. Think about the writings of uh, Socrates and Caesar and Plato, all of those things. Well, if we destroyed all the original copies of that, we wouldn't have any history. We can't find those things, but yet they are still authoritative in our life. Think about the Declaration of Independence. What if uh, the Declaration of Independence burnt up in a fire and it was no longer around, the original was no longer there would the copies of the Declaration of Independence still be authoritative? Absolutely. So here it is with the Scriptures, uh, the same kind of text. Although we believe that is the inspired Word of God, we know that humans have made alterations, either grammatical, right? We know that uh, the, the chapters and the verses were added in somewhere between 1200 and, five, uh, in 1,200 and 1,500. So they went in to add those so we could navigate places so Humans have gone in, and yes, we have altered or made some changes in it, but this, listen here on this, but we believe that the integrity of the Scriptures has not been compromised. We believe that it is the Word of God, that's the revealed Word of God, and if we believe that, then we believe that God has has chosen to preserve it in this world as well. So we believe that it should be in. The text, But let me go into a couple of things or a couple of reasons why that some people don't believe that it is or some of the cases in there. The first one is by early church father Augustine. In the year 430 A.D., he believed that it was in the original text, that it was in the original John's Gospel. But, listen, he believes that it was taken out in fear that people would see Jesus' soft response against adultery. Hey, it, whoa, Jesus just kind of forgives this woman, goes on. Listen, if people read this, then they're just going to fall into sexual licentiousness, right? Have sex with whoever they want to. There is no penalty. So he said, let's take it out. That's probably not going to go good, right? Listen to what Augustine said in 430, or 403 AD. He said, certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning. So there's some chauvinism here. Remove from the manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulterous woman, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. So he's like, let's just take it out. I don't want to give people the wrong idea. Jesus is a little soft on the adultery thing here. Let's take it out. There's another church father. Um, His name is Jerome in 400 A.D. And he believes that it actually was, was not in John's original gospel. It wasn't written down by John. Shouldn't be included from that standpoint. But he does believe it is a historically true event that did happen. Why? What is the basis of all that? Well, it's based upon its consistency. It sounds a little bit familiar to the woman at the well. We talked about that one uh, uh, earlier in John. It's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this story is, 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 is exactly in line with Jesus' ministry, his teaching. It is not a new revelation. It is not contradicting anything that he's ever done in his teaching. So he says it should be held in high esteem and you should teach it and you should include it because I believe it historically did happen. So that's what we're going to do. I I believe that, that it is something to be taught, uh, and we can learn great things about it, regardless if it was in the original text or not. Here's the deal. It may not be the basis of truth, but it does point to the truth. All right? If that makes sense, it is consistent with all the other truths in Scripture. So we have a great deal to learn from this. All right? So we could... Listen, we could sit here and talk about textual criticism for a long, long time. I don't have time to unpack that. Uh, textual criticism is a fancy word of people talking about uh, the, the, uh, the, the believability of the scriptures and all these translations. We don't have time to go there. But listen, if you follow me on Facebook, uh, if you don't, Friend me, please. I want to know you guys and get to meet you. But I'm going to post later today a good resource for those that want to dive deeper into textual criticism and and, and the reliability of the Scripture. So check it later. I'll post it sometime this afternoon. Uh, let's, Let's go into the text, all right? This is in 753 through 811. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against Him. So the context here, uh, the scene set up here is really coming off the end of chapter 7 where the Feast of Booths is wrapping up. The Jews had three major feasts, Pentecost. They had the Feast of Booths and the Feast of the Passover. Uh, But the Feast of Booths was a time where they got together and they camped in these booths, which was to remember the time where they were in the wilderness um, and they set up camp in the Feast of Booths, all right? So they, they recognized and celebrated that. And we talked about that in uh, a few, uh, I don't know, months ago, we talked about the Feast of Booths, right? Some of y'all thought I was saying the Feast of booze, and you closet Baptist drinkers are like, I'll sign up for that feast, where do I go? Uh, but that's the context of what's happened. So they're wrapping up the, the celebration and Jesus goes into the temple and he's sitting in the temple, and he's teaching, and then really out of, uh, out of the blue, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, drag a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they throw this woman at Jesus's feet, um, and, and what, we caught her. We caught her in the act. The law says we got a her. What do you say, Jesus? And they put him on the spot. Now let's frame up what's going on here in this scene you got some characters in it we need to look at first first is the scribes the scribes are the uh, religious lawyers as i said they're meticulous about copying the law all of the law very diligent writing down all parts of the law as both written law and the mishnah which was the oral law so they're masters and experts in the law and they are accompanied by the pharisees the pharisees the religious elite, the, the varsity, right, in their eyes at least. they were about 6,000 strong. Um, and their big thing was self-righteousness. They, they believed that they were above the law, that they were the righteous people before God based upon their works, based upon what they had done, their religious pedigree, that they had, they had memorized the Scripture, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They, they knew the law And they depended upon their own righteousness as their means to righteousness with God. And then they hear Jesus come in and preach, no, no, it's not your righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's it's got to be given to you. So they hate Jesus. They hate everything about him because they reduce them to nothing and they exalt the sinner. So they want to trap Jesus in every possible way. And then we have the adulterous woman. The adulterous woman caught in the act is what they say. Literally, the Greek participle here is she's caught in the act, in the middle of the act. I don't know really what's going on in the text completely there, but they drag her in, probably half naked, very shame-filled, guilt-ridden. They take her. They're probably dragging her, and they throw her at the feet of the holiest man that ever walked the face of the earth, the one place she doesn't want to be, right, at the feet of Jesus, hair disheveled. Shamed, sobbing, weeping, certain deaths. She knows the law. She knows she is facing a certain death, stoning. No escapable possibility for her. She deserves it. She's guilty. She's not in denial. She didn't say a peep. She didn't argue the case. So she is in this position of being clothed in Disgrace. Now, I want to set up the picture of what this really looks like. Because often we see stoning and we hear the word stoning. We don't really know the scene. And when we put ourselves in the scene, it becomes a little bit more real uh, to us. She is buried. Uh, they had dug a hole when they would stone. They were buried up uh, waist deep. And the, 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 uh, the guilty party would get into the hole, hands bound behind their back. Step into the hole and then get buried, uh, waist down, where they could not move whatsoever, sitting here just like this, awaiting stones of probably this size to just be pelted at their faces. A a brutal stoning that she deserved in her own guilt, and she knew it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie called The Stoning of Soraya M. Uh, Google that today. Heads up, it's very graphic. But it would show you the picture of a woman who would be stoned in adultery uh, minus the grace that Jesus gives. So it's a graphic picture of what's getting ready to happen. And it is a terrible scene. But there's something fishy about what's going on. Why is this a fishy scene? Well, uh, they caught her in the act. Like, was it happening in the street? Like, That's a little bit weird. Where's the guy at? Where's he at in this deal? Last time I checked, adultery requires two people, right? Takes two to tango. Where's the guilty party in this deal? Why is he not in this deal? If they really cared about the law, if they really wanted to uphold and love the law, he would be on trial right next to her. He'd be sitting right next to her getting to stone. Why is he not there? Because they don't care about the law. They're not trying to uphold the law. They're trying to trap Jesus. In verse 6, that's where we learn they're testing him. That's what's happening here. He is a threat to them, and they want him dead. So this whole thing is a big, massive setup. The problem is it's not as a point in time yet. So what's the setup? What's the trap? Well, here's the trap, because the law did say, the Mosaic law did say, that the guilty person in adultery, they would be stoned to death. It's guilty. It's one strike, and you're out. One act of adultery deserved death. So There's the first thing, Mosaic Law says that. God's very serious about adultery. If Jesus does not stone this woman or authorize the stoning of this woman, he will be called a heretic who is going against the Scriptures, the Mosaic Law. Therefore, no one should listen to him at all. He is full of heresy. So we got him there. If he he says, don't stone her, we got him, right? Well, here's the other side of the trap. The Jews lived in a Roman governmental system. The Romans, they allowed the Jews to have cultural and religious freedoms. Hey, you can worship on your celebrations and your Sabbath. and Y'all can do all these things. We're going to give you those freedoms. But the one thing the Jews could not do was carry out a capital punishment. They couldn't execute anyone. That was for Rome and Rome alone. You know, this is why Jesus had to be crucified by Pilate and not by Caiaphas, all right? So that's what's happening here. So if Jesus, all right, we got him now because if Jesus says stone her, he's executing corporal punishment and that is reserved for the Romans. If he does that, we're going to drag him before the government and say, look what he's doing. He just spit in your face, kill him, right? So there's the perfect setup. They have Jesus right where they want him right there there is no third option they think they have him right where they want checkmate jesus and what he does in response is divinely brilliant it's brilliant it's amazing what he does in this moment where there seems to be no way out and let's look and read jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground I mean, he just goes down to the ground. Like he goes quarterback on the Sandlot football team. He goes down to the ground, gets a little huddle, and he starts drawing up a play in the dirt. What's going on? And they keep pressing. They get mad. You're not answering our question, Jesus. What do you say? And he says, okay. He picks Mosaic Law. He says, okay, yes, let's stone her. And then he appoints her executioners. Hey, let whoever doesn't have sin, let the guiltless, whoever has no sin, you cast the first stone. You get a rock and you be the first one to throw. And then he drops back down on the ground and he begins to write more in the dirt. Now, that right there is one of the most speculative passages in all of Scripture. What is Jesus doing in the dirt What's he doing? Like, he's just down on the ground. It seems a little arbitrary. What's happening? And there's been a lot of speculation over the the ages of church history on what Jesus is doing in this moment. We don't know. No one for sure knows, okay? It would be clearly speculation, and we need to be very careful about anywhere in the Bible where there is a gap of of doubt there that we we don't act like we know what it is. John Calvin says where God's holy mouth is shut, we should desist from inquiry. He's basically saying don't squabble over things that are unclear in the Scriptures. But often speculation is a little too tempting. And uh, we need to, I want to show you a couple of those things that might be happening in this text. Some people have said Jesus is just doodling in the dirt. Now, my Jesus is not a doodler. Like, I, I mean, give me a little scratch pad and I'll doodle. I'm just bored right now. Oh, he's not a doodler. I don't believe he's douler. I, I think I, he didn't do anything arbitrarily. Everything he did had purpose. Everything, every moment of the day, every second of the day, it all had purpose. So Jesus is no dooler. The second thing is this, um, and this is based upon Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Listen, because I don't think this one's up there. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written. In the earth, So in that picture, the one who would believe in that text, that literally the finger of God is writing their names in the dirt, in the earth of those who are going to be put to shame. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I, I, I tend to believe the, the third uh, theory of most, that in this moment, the word write here uh, that he's writing is only used one more time in the Scriptures in the book of Job. So let me show you that picture. This is Job 13, 26. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. So the word write here means writing down things against another person, writing down their iniquities. So this is where I would probably fall into believing that literally in this moment, Jesus is sitting down and he's in the dirt and he's writing out the sins of the people. Ray, pornographer, Steve, adulterer, John, murderer, Craig, sex addict, Mike, the glutton. I think he's sitting there and he's scanning because he's a omniscient and he knows their sins. You can't hide those things from Jesus. And he knows them, and he's riding them in the dirt. One by one, the rocks get dropped. From oldest to youngest, you can just imagine the scene, the thickness over there. They're all standing there thinking they're pretty righteous with a rock in hand. And all of a sudden, he calls out their sin. And they just kind of go, <clears throat> you know, kind of drops the rock and walks off. That's me. This is a thick scene. I think this is what it's going to be like on the Day of Judgment. I think that none of us are going to go out of our way to go to the rock pile. I think none of us will be standing with stone in hand. This is all of us. And she looks up and her accusers are gone none to be found the only one left they're all gone the only one standing there left is the only one that can execute the punishment the only one without sin is Jesus what will he do she knows the law once again she knows what she deserves in this moment is to be stoned to death what does Jesus do she's broken the law and let's see what he does And Jesus stood up and said to her woman Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, comma, Lord. Underline that. Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Where are your accusers? They're not here. They've all left. Neither do I. She says, No, Lord. The word Lord here means master. No one, master. And his response to that was, Neither do I. She called him Lord. She called him master. Why why is that significant? He didn't say, Hey, let's pause for a minute. Would you pray this prayer? Can you just repeat these things after me? I think we need to baptize you. No, he didn't say that at all. She said, Lord. And she knew that meant master. And because she called him master, because she surrendered to Christ in that very moment, his response was, I do not condemn you either. Go therefore and sin no more before she had done a single self-righteous thing in her life. He says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Not one thing. And this is profound in our understanding of salvation. We see this. This is a common theme in our church. It's always, every single week we're going to tell you how to be saved. What does God say about salvation? We The church today is filled, not only the church, but the world today is filled with people who have prayed the prayer, who've cried out to God, save me, with no intentions whatsoever on him being the master of their life. Save me, give me heaven, but don't tell me what to do. I'll listen to your advice and your suggestion box, Jesus, kind of fill it up. I'll take some, I'll weed him through. My life's pretty awesome already. I don't know if you know. Maybe you can add to my awesomeness, Jesus. But I got, I got the show. I'm still riding. I'm still driving. I'm still the pilot of my ship. I'm still the captain of my vessel. People that have no intention on letting Jesus be master of their life will not see the kingdom of God. If you in your life have cried out to God, save me, and you have no intention of him mastering over you, listen, I'm going to be clear. You're not Christian. You're not a Christian. You can't be. There's no such thing as any Christian I've ever seen in the Scriptures that says you can be saved from eternal damnation and not Jesus be master of your life. It's not what he does. He didn't give you fire insurance. It's not what he's for. for. He saved you to transform you. And we, as Christians, we fall into the delightful... Mastery of Jesus. We love it. It's not burdensome. It's freeing to be mastered by Jesus. We talked about this even last week. So I I say that. Listen, I say that to often stir up people's thoughts. Am I really saved? Like I want you to think about that today. I want you to ponder your salvation. Why? Not to usher you into guilt and shame. But to usher you into truth of truly if you are or not. And see if you are not that you would cry out just as this adulterous woman has and say, Lord, I surrender to you. That's my hope. That's why I want you to wrestle with this question in you today. Are you saved? Has he been the master of your life? Or is he just your savior? Now, the picture here, if you think about she's not done one thing she's not gone to church yet she hasn't even apologized or asked for forgiveness from either party of the marital party she hasn't gone to church she hasn't been baptized yet she hasn't done one single righteous act and yet jesus has already pronounced her judgment do, do you do you hear that for a second Like, listen to that. She's not done one single thing in her life that would ever please God, and yet now he's already pronouncing judgment on her. She will be eternally freed, and there will never be condemnation in her life ever again. That is scandalous. That flies in the face of every single religion in the world except for Christianity. Because every other religion says, works, 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 do this, do that, don't do that, and then God will pronounce judgment on you. And this is the gospel turns it upside down. He says, no, I have pronounced judgment on you. Now go and therefore live as the person who I've set free. That is the scandal of the gospel that it is. and It's so hard for people to understand because they can't earn it. They can't work at it. They're so undeserving of it. Here she is clothed, once clothed in disgrace, and now Jesus covers her with his grace. It's a beautiful picture. Man, if that that doesn't uh, turn you on, you don't have any switches. (laughs) I'll say that. If that doesn't stir you up and your affections for Jesus Christ, your heart may not be redeemed at all. I love that (laughs) because I'm the adulterous woman. That's how I know that. I'm her. You are her. We all are her. Some people say, well, she just got off scot-free. And ain't just dusted it under the rug, he just gets off free. What's the big deal? That's what all the Pharisees are saying. She didn't get off free. That sin of adultery was getting ready to get paid for on the cross in six months from then. It's getting paid for, all right. The wrath of God will be poured out for that sin. It's just going to be poured out on Jesus instead of her. Some people say, well, hey, the man in this guilty adultery here, where's he at? He just got off free, too. He'll pay. The Lord will make him pay as well. It'll be paid for on the cross, or he'll pay for it on final judgment. Nobody gets off free. Man, in this moment where he pronounces her condemnation, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, Paul would go on to echo this in Romans 8, one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So at that moment, he's pronounced it. Now to you today, if you are in Christ, listen for just a moment. If you truly are in Christ, Jesus has said to you the same thing that he said to this woman, neither I condemn you. That means not now I condemn you, and I'm not going to condemn you later. I've already been judged for that. I've already punished that on the cross. Stop walking in guilt and shame because I've already told you there's no condemnation. Now some people they don't get that, so what happens is they get stuck in past shame and guilt, and they can't get past it. I'll tell you that there's an element of pride underneath that. God has pronounced judgment, and says you're innocent, but you say, "No, no, no, I'm still guilty." There's a pride element underneath that. Jesus won't stone you, so don't stone yourself. And that is a beautiful picture because I do believe this. I believe there's so many people that have walked in here today and you might be just like this woman, the sexual captive. In this context, that's what's happening here. You've walked in with sexual shame and guilt from your past or maybe even your present. You feel condemnation. You don't feel this no condemnation whatsoever. So what happens? You get stuck. You get stuck, and what happens is that bleeds over, not only in your spiritual life, but it it can bleed over in your marriage life. Think about that. Maybe you're a couple that's in the room, and maybe you and your past have a sexual, immoral past full of guilt and shame. You've not handled it the right way. You've taken a good gift from God, and you spit in His face, and it's left a path of destruction in your life. And now your marriage, you carry that into it. Shame. And guilt and condemnation, and you don't get to walk in the freedom of sex between a husband and a wife. Man, be set free, be set free from that guilt and condemnation. Maybe you are the the uh, you, you have been a victim of sexual abuse in your life, and that's a horrible, horrible tragedy. Set free from condemnation. It is not you. You have been redeemed by Christ. You don't have to be shame and guilt anymore. You have a new identity as this woman does. And maybe it's not a sexual thing. Clearly there's other sins in the world that would walk in here not sexual. Maybe yours is drunkenness. Maybe you're just a practicer of drunkenness. That's just what you do. Maybe you should. You're a regular gossiper. Maybe you're an adulterer right now. I don't know. You're stuck. And there's nothing around you that's going on. There's a deep-rooted sin issue in your life that's causing you to feel that way. And God wants to set you free from it. And lacking, thinking about when we doubt God's forgiveness for us. Thinking that God's will, He have enough forgiveness for me? H- have I exhausted it? Have I done the worst thing in the world? He would never forgive me. Tim Keller says this that wondering if God has enough forgiveness for all your past sin is like a child wondering if there's enough water in the ocean to fill his sippy cup. You can't outsend the cross of Christ, you can't do it, it's nothing. There's nothing in your past that you've done that's so bad, or that someone has done to you in their, in, in your past, that will outsend the cross of Christ and ex- extinguish God's forgiveness for you, man. It, and, and once she's experienced the grace, right, he's freed her up. No condemnation forever. So what what, what does Jesus say? Hey, just let grace abound. Just go live your life however you want to and you just keep throwing that grace up. Just get, just get drunk on that grace. Let it abound. That's not what he says. Just go and sin no more. Now, he did, he's not saying don't ever sin again. What he's saying is, stop practicing sex. Stop practicing sin. Stop running back as a sexual captive, sleeping with your boyfriend and your girlfriend and other people's wives. Stop doing these things is what he's saying. Stop walking in habitual patterns of sin. I've redeemed you. Now, live like a redeemed daughter of the king. He has determined her identity for her. And now that he's established her identity, he's saying, Now let your activity flow out of who I've made you. And that's also the beauty of the gospel. Why it is so different? Because God tells us who we are, who he makes us, and then we go and live in light of that. Now, what would happen if this woman, this adulterous woman, said, yeah, awesome, Lord, no condemn, cool, I'm out of here, and she goes to sleep with all the Jewish fishing team, right? What would happen? She probably never really meant it when she said, Lord. I don't know if she did or not. We don't see in the text, but if she went back to practicing habitual sin and didn't change, she never called him Lord to begin with. She never meant it. If you continue as a redeemed person to walk in the patterns of habitual same sin and you do not ever confess them and you do not repent of them all your days, you are not actually redeemed. He's not your Savior, He's not your Lord. The Spirit won't tolerate that. If the Spirit dwells inside of you, you will be at war with that sin, and you will eventually confess and repent of it. And this woman, I'd like to believe that she stopped being a sexual captive. Here's what, here's what Jesus did in this story. All right, this is kind of the overarching theme of what he did here. He did three things. He exalted himself above the law. He didn't abolish the law. Okay? The second thing he did is he changed the penalty for law-breaking. It was punishment by death. He changes the punishment for law-breaking. And the third thing he did, he reestablishes righteousness as a foundation of grace. No longer, or so they thought, that righteousness was earned by works and by you. He says, no, I've established a new righteousness. It's upon my grace. It's given to you. And that flips the whole thing upside down. What's important about that is to see in the story is that grace precedes law-keeping. Grace precedes law-keeping. So before you're a follower of Jesus, you think law-keeping is a means to grace. I've got to keep the law. I've got to do this. i got to do that. I've got to do all these things, and hopefully God will say one day, you are in my presence. Welcome you into, into his presence. That's what you think. God in the story clearly says you're wrong. You are wrong the whole time. You're, it's not, not that at all. He says you can't keep the law. You're a law breaker by nature. You will always break the law. And the only way you can ever even obey the law is when you've been touched by grace, when you've been saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Then and then only can you be a law keeper or the ability to be a law keeper, I should say. That's a, it's a great story. It's a great story about the means of salvation that we all absolutely love. So let me, let me see if I can, I can land this here just a moment. And as I was reading this text today and this morning, and we're so quick to, to divorce and depart ourselves from people that we see in the Bible and stories. I'm not the adulterous woman. I've not, I've not ever slept with anybody else. My husband, that's probably not many of us. I, I hope it is. That's not my story. I'm not a sexual captive. That's a horrible thing. I can't believe people do that. I, I'm not like them. And I pray that we confess and repent that all day long if we think we're not the adulterous woman. This is all of us. <laughs> this is all of us. Maybe your sin looked different than hers, but don't judge her by the appearance of her external sin. This is us. And here's the picture. Frame it up. We've been dragged before a holy God. And there's a rock pile that's formed around us. And we're standing there, hands behind our back. We are guilty for law breaking. We've all done it. And every stone that is aimed at us, aimed at our soul, We deserve every single rock, not just for a physical death, but a spiritual death, a spiritual stoning that never, ever stops. And we are all guilty. That's us. Picture yourself in the hole. And then Jesus shows up in your life. You call him Lord. He says, there's no condemnation for you ever. Get out of that ground. There's no rocks around you. No one's going to stone you, ever. Man, that is us. And that is the beauty of the gospel. So I pray, as we do some closing application here in this piece, that if you are someone here today, you've been redeemed by Christ, and you walk in shame and guilt from any past sexual sin, a habitual sin, anything in your life, that you'll be freed up from that today. You would understand of what he's made you. And you would walk in the freedom of no condemnation now, no condemnation later. Some of you, you still don't see yourself as the adulterous woman. You, you, I say that and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I got no clue what you're talking about. I'm a man. I don't even, I'm not a woman. You might even be saying that. Heck, I don't know. Listen, I pray this. I pray that God breaks through that and shows you that you are the adulterous woman and gives you, by his grace, a ton of shame and a ton of guilt. So that you're buried so low that the only place that you can go is up. And that when your face is on the ground and you're guilt and shame and everything you've ever done to a holy God, that he comes beside you and you call him Lord and he picks you up. He says, get out of that, get out of that ground. Get out of that ground. Be free, live free, live holy. There's no condemnation for you. That is my hope and prayer today that no one would walk out with a false sense of assurance of salvation. You would know confidently where you stand in your relationship with the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father. We thank you for your word. It cuts, it it, it cuts our righteousness. It, it cuts our goodness. Like we, we think we're so good and we're not like the others. And, and then we read your word and you, and, you, and you cut us down. Father, thank you for not leaving us in that guilt and shame. Thank you for meeting us in that place right there and lifting us up. And calling us new creations, free creations that have no condemnation. Thank you for giving us a new identity. And I pray that we walk in the boldness of who you are and who you've made us. And, Father, I pray that you would save some today. Would you have an appointment? Father, it's our desire that you would have a same divine appointment with a a woman or a man here today, just like you've done here. You're the same Jesus we're reading about in the text. You are still here. You are still present. And you can still save. So, Father, do your work. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus who set us free from shame and guilt. Help us to live and sin no more. In his precious name, amen.